Chapter Seventeen of On the Irrawaddy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. On the Irrawaddy by G. A. Henty. Chapter Seventeen: The Pride of Burma Humbled. As soon as the victory was completed, the troops piled arms and were allowed two hours' rest. Then they marched back to the point where General Campbell's division had forded the Nawine River in the morning. From this point, the path led toward the enemy's center. This it was determined to attack at daybreak on the following morning, before the news of the defeat of its left could reach it. The day had been a long and fatiguing one, and it was late before the troops all reached their halting place. A meal was served out, and then all lay down to rest. A messenger was sent to Prome to announce the success that had been gained, and to request the commander of the flotilla to open fire in the morning, as soon as the foe was seen to issue from the jungle in front of the Wangi's main position at Napadee. Long before daylight the troops were in motion. General Campbell's division led the way along the narrow track leading toward the river, while General Cotton, who followed, was ordered to break off at any path which led toward the Burmese division, to make his way through the forest and to attack the stockades directly he reached them. The main division would attack as soon as they heard his guns. After a two hours' march, the first division came out on open ground by the riverside, signaled their arrival to the flotilla, and formed up in front of the stockaded heights of Napadee. The position was an extremely strong one. The enemy occupied three ranges of hills, rising one behind the other, and each commanding the one in front of him. One flank of those hills was protected by the river, the other by the almost impenetrable forest. The hills were all covered with stockades, and as they moved forward, the troops were exposed to so heavy a fire from an enemy entrenched at the edge of the jungle on the right, that before they could advance further, it was necessary to first drive them from this position. Six companies of the 87th were sent back into the forest, and making their way through this, came down in the rear of the stockades, speedily clearing them of their defenders, and compelled the advance force of the enemy to join their main body. The troops then moved forward to the foot of the first hill, where two strong redoubts had been erected by the enemy. The fleet opened fire, but the column was halted for a time, awaiting the sound of firing that should tell them General Cotton's column was engaged. No sound, however, was heard, for this force had been unable to make its way through the dense forest, and General Campbell at last gave the order for the attack. It was, it was commenced by the 47th and 38th Native Infantry, under Colonel Elvington, who pushed through the jungle and forest until they reached some of the flanking outworks on the hill. These they attacked with such dash and determination that they speedily obtained possession of them, and thus produced a favorable diversion for the main attack. This, consisting of the 13th, 38th, and 87th regiments, advanced steadily without returning a shot to the incessant fire from the enemy's various entrenchments, captured the two redoubts at the bottom of the hill, and then pressed upward, carrying position after position at the point of the bayonet, till they arrived at the summit of the first hill. The Burmese fugitives, as they fled to the next line of defense, shook the courage of the troops there, and the British, pushing forward hotly on the rear of the flying crowd, carried work after work, until in the course of an hour the whole position, nearly three miles in extent, was entirely in their possession. Between forty and fifty guns were captured, and the enemy's loss in killed and wounded was very great, while desertion alone the Wangi lost a third of his army. While the attack had been going on, the flotilla had passed the works protecting the river face of the hills, and had captured all the boats and stores, filled with supplies for the use of the Burmese army. Thus two of the three Burmese divisions had now been completely routed. 
and there remained only that of Sudawoon on the other side of the river. The troops were allowed two days' rest, and on the morning of the 5th a force advanced on board the flotilla. Their passage across the river was covered by the fire of a rocket brigade and a mortar battery, which had on the previous night been established on an island, and they landed at some distance above the enemy's stockades. They then marched round and attacked these in flank and rear, while the batteries and boats of the flotilla cannonaded them in front. The enemy's troops were already disheartened by the defeat that they had seen inflicted upon the Wongese army, and after a feeble resistance fled to a second line of stockades in the jungle to their rear. The troops, however, pressed so hotly upon them that they were unable to make any effectual opposition there. Numbers fell while endeavouring to pass through the narrow entrances of the work, and the rest fled in terror into the woods. These extensive operations had been carried out with the loss of six officers and some seventy or eighty men only. It was known that the enemy had very strongly fortified several positions in and around Mayday, and it was determined to push forward at once on the long march of three hundred miles to Ava before the enemy could rally from their defeat and gather for the defense of these positions. On the ninth, the first division, again under General Campbell, himself started from Prome. The roads were extremely bad, and they were able to move but slowly. Their course was first directed inland, as it was intended to turn the enemy's position at Mayday, by following a road several miles from the river, and thus forcing them to fall back as we advanced. On the next day the force reached the spot where Colonel McDowell had been killed, in the unsuccessful attack upon Maha Nimiao, and it then turned north and followed the road parallel to the river. On the twelfth, tremendous rains, for some hours, converted the road into a morass, and although the march was but five miles long, the greater portion of the column failed to reach its destination. This, however, was not the worst. Cholera broke out at once, and carried off a large number of victims, two of the British regiments being rendered almost unfit for service by its ravages. On the fourteenth, the division encamped on dry ground, on a ridge of wooden hills, and waited for a couple of days to allow the baggage train to come up. The change greatly benefited the health of the troops, and amusement was afforded by the partridges, jungle fowl, and deer, which abounded in the neighborhood of the camp. Up to this point no single native had been seen. The villages were all destroyed, and the country was completely deserted. On the 16th a strong Burmese fortification was taken, it being unoccupied save by a small picket, which retired on our advance. This had evidently been erected for the purpose of preventing the river fortifications from being turned, and its abandonment proved that the object of the land march had been gained, and that the enemy had abandoned the position they had with so much care prepared for the defense of the river. On the 18th they joined General Cotton's column, and the next day entered Mayday. Here a terrible spectacle was met with. The town and the ground within the stockades was strewn with dead and dying, some from wounds, others from cholera for the ravages of this plague had been as great among the Burmese as in the British force. A number of men were found crucified on gibbets, doubtless as a punishment for attempting to desert. The air was pestilent, and the force was glad indeed to march on the next day from the locality. They gained something, but not much, from the change. For the next fifty miles dead bodies were met with at very short intervals, and each day before camping many corpses had to be removed before the tents could be fixed. It was now known that the Burmese army, in its retreat, had been concentrated at Meloon, where the reserve of ten thousand men had been posted. On the twenty-seventh the division encamped within four miles of that town. They had now marched a hundred and forty miles from Prome, without meeting a single inhabitant of the country, 
or being enabled to obtain any cattle, whatever, for the supply of the troops, so effectually had the enemy wasted the country as they retired. Maloon stood on the opposite bank of the Irrawaddy, and letters had arrived from that town, saying that a commissioner had arrived from Ava, with full powers from the king to conclude a treaty of peace. Colonel Adair and Stanley, accordingly, were sent off the next morning to Maloon, to arrange for an immediate meeting for the commissioners. However, they could come to no arrangement, the Burmese leaders insisting that so important a business could only be carried on when a favorable day arrived, and that no time could, at present, be stated. Seeing that the principal object of the Burmese was to gain time, the colonel informed them, through Stanley, that, as no arrangements had been made, the troops would recommence their advance as soon as he returned to the camp, and accordingly the next morning the division moved forward to a town immediately opposite Maloon. That place stood on the face of a sloping bank, and as the Irrawaddy was here about six hundred yards broad, a good view was obtained of the fortifications. The principal stockade was in the form of a square about a mile on each face, mounting a considerable number of guns, especially on the side facing the river and a succession of stockades extended for a mile farther along the banks. The great work was crowded with men. In front of the town lay a large fleet of war-boats, and larger craft with stores. A short time after the troops reached the spot a great noise of gongs, drums, and other warlike instruments arose on the other side, and crowds of boatmen were seen running down to the vessels. These were soon manned, and oars got out, and they began to row up the river. As owing to the intricacy of the channel, the steamboat and flotilla had not yet arrived, a few shots were fired at the boats by the field-guns. This had the desired effect, many of the boatmen jumping overboard, leaving their craft to drift down the river, while the great bulk hastily turned their vessels about and anchored in their former position. As soon as the steamer with the flotilla came up, two war-boats pushed off from shore, saluted the steamer, and rowed alongside of her, until she and the flotilla were safely anchored above the town. This was so evidently a mark of a real desire for the suspension of hostilities, that the two officers were again sent across the river. A truce was agreed upon, and an arrangement made for the meeting of the negotiators upon the following day. Four meetings were held between the two commissioners, and those appointed by the British general, the meetings taking place on boats moored in the centre of the river. At length the treaty was accepted and signed by the Burmese, and fifteen days' truce allowed for the ratification of the treaty by the king. As the end of that period approached, the Burmese protested that they had not yet received an answer, and asked for further time, which was refused, unless on the condition that Maloon was evacuated, and the Burmese army fell back until the ratification of the treaty reached them. As had been for some time strongly suspected, the negotiations were simply a device to arrest our advance, and the treaty was afterwards found in the Burmese camp, never having even been forwarded to Ava. At midnight on the 18th, when the armistice came to a conclusion, troops began throwing up earthworks, the heavy guns were landed from the flotilla, and at ten o'clock the next morning twenty-eight guns were in position ready to open fire. In spite of remonstrances that had been made, the Burmese had, night after night during the armistice, continued to work surreptitiously at their entrenchments. It was hoped for a moment that when they saw the speed with which our batteries had been thrown up and armed, that they would offer no further resistance. As, however, they were evidently preparing for action, our guns opened fire at eleven o'clock. This was kept up for two hours. While it was going on, the troops intended for the assault were embarked on boats, some distance up the river, so as to ensure their not being carried by the force of the stream across the face of the Burmese works, and exposed to the concentrated fire of the enemy. They were divided into four brigades, the first of which, consisting of the 13th and 38th regiments, under Lieutenant Colonel Sale, were to land below the stockade, 
and to attack its southwestern angle, while the other three brigades were to land above it, to carry some outworks there, and to attack the northern face. A strong northerly wind and the violent current prevented the assaults being made simultaneously. The first brigade was carried too far across, and as it passed the stockade was exposed to the fire of the guns and musketry of the river defences, while the three other brigades were unable for some time to reach their intended landing places. Colonel Sale was among those wounded by the Burmese fire, but directly the first brigade reached the shore they formed up under the partial cover of a shelving bank, and led by Lieutenant Colonel Frith, moved forward to the assault in admirable order. When within a short distance there was a forward rush, in spite of the storm of shot, the latter party gained the foot of the stockade, and placing the ladders climbed up and leapt down among the surging crowd of the enemy. Others followed, and soon a firm footing was obtained in the works. Then the men of the two regiments, whose total strength did not exceed five hundred, advanced steadily, drove before them some ten thousand armed men, and expelled them from the works that the Burmese had deemed impregnable. While this was going on, the other three brigades had landed above the stockade, and now falling upon the enemy as they poured out from their works, completed their defeat. All the stockades were carried, and the whole of the artillery and stores fell into our possession. Four days later the army began again its advance. They were met by four Englishmen, who had been taken prisoners, and an American who had also been held in confinement. These had been sent to assure the English general that the king was in earnest in his desire for peace. It was but too evident, however, that no confidence could be placed in Burmese negotiations, and it was moreover known that another army was being assembled, in the greatest haste, to bar the advance. On the 14th of February the British reached Pakang Ye, having passed Sengaboon on the opposite shore. This was the first point where the road from Arakan reached the Irrawaddy and it had been arranged that the force that had been operating in Arakan should, if possible, effect a junction with Sir Archibald Campbell here. A message brought down by a native was, however, received, stating that the force had suffered very severely from fever and cholera, and that the natural obstacles were found to be too great to be overcome by troops debilitated by disease, that the attempt had therefore been abandoned. Fortunately, the English general was well able to do without this addition to his strength, he had already proved that his command was perfectly capable of defeating any Burmese force that could be brought against him, and an addition would only have increased the difficulty of transportation. On the ninth of March the British force, which owing to the necessity for leaving strong bodies to hold Maloon and other points that had been captured already, now mustered less than two thousand fighting men, advanced to attack the enemy whose numbers were estimated at sixteen thousand. The new commander of the Burmese adopted other tactics than his predecessors. His stockaded position was in front of the town of Pegan, but he occupied the jungle in great force, and attacked our advance guard five miles from the town. As the enemy occupied the hills on both sides of the main road, Sir Archibald Campbell divided his force, and led half of it through the jungles on the right, while General Cotton led the other half through the woods on the left. The Burmese fought with considerable obstinacy. General Campbell and his staff, with thirty-eight troopers and fifty men of the 13th, were somewhat in advance of the column, when the enemy closed in on both flanks and even got in their rear. These were, however, dispersed by the rest of the 13th, and driving back the Burmese on the flanks, the advance was continued. Presently, however, as the British issued from the jungle, a mass of the enemy's horse charged down, drove back the skirmishers, and for a time the position of the general and his staff was one of great peril. His little body of troops, however, dashed boldly at the assailants, 
and held them in check until the guns that had followed the staff were brought forward from the jungle. Then the troops divided and rode right and left, and the guns, opening fire, checked the assailants until the infantry came up. The Burmese army was now seen drawn up in the form of a semicircle in the open. The two British columns were united, and together moved forward to attack the centre of the crescent, disregarding the fire from its wings. When within charging distance they went forward with a rush, and cheering lustily fell upon the Burmese and broke their centre, thus isolating the two wings. The Burmese at once retreated with the greatest haste to the stockaded position in their rear. As usual, the narrow entrances to the stockades caused great delay, and the British were upon them before they were in any way prepared to resist the assault. Heralding their advance by sweeping volleys, the English fell upon the Burmese with the bayonet and drove them out of their works. The enemy made an attempt to rally behind the walls and in the pagodas of the town, but the effort was vain. They were driven out with great slaughter, hundreds were drowned in endeavouring to swim the river, and the army was finally dispersed in all directions. The effect of this victory was at once apparent. The country people, who had, on the advance of the British force from Prome, been cleared out from the villages along the whole line of route, being now freed from the restraint of their troops, came flocking back in great numbers, some by the roads and some in boats, and it was evident that they regarded the struggle as definitely terminated. There was indeed no possibility of further resistance, as the armies of Burma, raised with immense difficulty and by heavy bounties and the promises of great reward, were hopelessly scattered, and Ava lay open to the British advance. In other directions their position was equally desperate. Arakan had been wholly rescued from the Burmese grasp. A British force in Pegu had marched up the river Sitang, and after the repulse of a party of a hundred and fifty men, imprudently sent to attack Setang itself, captured the place after a sharp fight, and receiving reinforcements from Rangoon, continued their way up the river, and captured Tungu, while the northern force had driven the Burmese out of Manipur, and had reached the river Ningtai by the 2nd of February, and were in a position to advance direct upon Ava. After a halt of two days, General Campbell advanced on the 12th of February, Mr. Price, the American who had been sent down after the capture of Maloon, went forward to Ava with the treaty that had been drawn up before the capture of that place, and the king had no longer any hesitation in complying with its terms, and was indeed delighted to find that the recent victory of the invaders had not increased their demands. He at once sent down to accept them, but as no official ratification was sent, the march continued, while Mr. Price again returned to Ava. When the force was within four days' march of the capital, the latter returned with the Burmese commissioners and the other high functionaries, with the ratified treaty, and the first installment of the money that was to be paid. It was a disappointment to the army that after their long march and many sufferings they were not to be allowed to enter the enemy's capital in triumph. Undoubtedly, however, the course taken was the wisest. Ava was regarded as a sacred city, and it was to save it from the humiliation of being occupied by the invaders that the king had brought himself to accept the terms of the treaty. Had the English general insisted upon entering the capital and signing the treaty there, he would have found no one to meet him. The population would have been driven out, the king and court would have retired further up the country, and the war might have continued for an indefinite time. Already its costs had been enormous, exceeding five million pounds sterling. During the first eleven months after landing at Rangoon, nearly half of the Europeans died and from the time they advanced from that town with fresh reinforcements from India, to the arrival near Ava, a similarly heavy loss was sustained. 
four percent of the number engaged was killed in action. The climate of Arakan was still more deadly, as three-fourths of the white troops employed there died, and very few of the survivors were ever fit for service again. The sepoys suffered less in Arakan, losing only ten percent of their number, though nearly half the force were in hospital for some time. According to agreement, the Burmese, as soon as the peace was concluded, sent down a large number of boats for the conveyance of the troops down the river. As they descended it, the garrisons left Maloon, and other places were withdrawn. One of the native regiments, with some elephants and guns, left the force of Sembuan, and marched thence to Arakan for the purpose of investigating the country, and proving whether it was practicable for the passage of troops in case another advance upon Ava should ever be necessary. They found the road unexpectedly good, and met with no resistance whatever, except in the passage of some passes over the mountains. At Maloon, Stanley was very glad to meet his cousin again, for the 47th had been left in garrison there. Harry had been down again with a sharp attack of fever, but was now recovering. "'So it's all over, Stanley, and your chances of an earldom have nearly slipped through your fingers.' "'I am glad, indeed, that it is so,' Stanley laughed. "'In the first place, because I could only have succeeded to it at your death, and in the second place, because I have no ambition whatever for a title. I am not nineteen yet, and should greatly prefer to make my own way, than to find myself with nothing whatever to do except to spend money as it dropped into my lap. Now that everything is settled, and that Arakan has become English, and we have the seaports on the Tanasserim coast, trade will increase tremendously.' We may be sure that the Burmese will be only too glad to flock into our provinces, and to live under a fair rule to escape the tyranny of their own officials, and my uncle is just the man to take advantage of the new openings. I don't say that I want to live out here all my life. At any rate, I hope by the time I'm thirty to be able to come home for a year's holiday, and it's just possible that by then we may have grown into such a large firm that we may establish headquarters in London, instead of getting all our goods from Calcutta. There is certainly to be a very big trade here, in teak alone. The price in Pegu is a great deal below that in India, and if we had a house in London we should avoid having to pay commissions, and perhaps get better prices for our wood. Of course my uncle may be that time think of retiring himself, and in that case I might have to stay somewhat longer out here. But I know that he likes the climate, and I have heard him say that, as he has very few acquaintances in England, he thinks that he should prefer a life in Calcutta to one in London. "'I should not wonder if I go home very shortly,' Harry said. "'My last letter told me that my uncle was in failing health, and that he would like to have me at home with him. If the next letter confirms that, I am afraid that I shall have to either resign my commission or exchange into a regiment at home. Of course, at his death I should have to leave the army. Anyhow, it would be ridiculous for a subaltern to be an earl. Besides, there are things one would have to do. I suppose there are estates to be looked after, and all sorts of nuisances. Anyhow—' I shall always be glad I have had my share in this expedition. I have learnt what campaigning is, and I must say that, under such circumstances as we have gone through, it is not quite so pleasurable as I had expected. Half one's friends are dead or invalided home, and one never knows when one wakes up in the morning whether one may not be down with cholera before night. The fighting's all well enough, but, after all, that takes up a very small portion of one's time. And marching, and I may say living generally, in this hot, sweltering climate with its six months of rain, is not enviable work. However, I have gone through one regular campaign, and that's as severe a one as British troops have ever performed, and above all, old man, I have met you, and we have come to be great friends, and I have learned what one fellow will do for another. 
I am sure I am very glad to have gone through it, too. I have been fortunate, indeed, in never having been laid up for a single day, and there is no doubt that having served on the staff will be of great advantage to me, even as a traitor. I own that I should like to have retired a captain. Of course, promotion has been tremendously fast, owing to the death vacancies, but I have still two lieutenants over me. Oh, you're sure to get the step, Stanley. You've been in general orders twice, besides that notice you got from my rescue. Also the doctors say that a number of the men who have been sent down to the coast are not likely to live many weeks, and as five of your seniors have been invalided, you may get your step in the natural course of things at any moment. If I were you, I should ask for three months' leave before rejoining your regiment. There'll be no difficulty about that after you've been upwards of two years in constant work, and the general will certainly not refuse. Before the end of that time you'll have seen your uncle and talked matters over. Then, if you choose to resign your commission, you can, of course, do so, but as you are pretty sure to get your step, by death, before the end of the three months, and as the General's dispatches strongly recommended your service, you may get your brevet major majority before your resignation reaches England. A man who has been mentioned two or three times in dispatches, and is specially recommended for honours, is sure to get his brevet majority directly he gets his company. On reaching Rangoon, Stanley learned that two of the invalids had died, either on the way down or before they could be put aboard a ship, and that one of the majors, who had been sent to India for change four months before, had also succumbed, so that he had already obtained his company, a promotion which would have been at any other time extraordinary, but which in a campaign where half those engaged were carried off was nothing remarkable. Being still on the headquarter staff, he embarked with Sir Archibald Campbell. "'You still hold firm to your determination to leave the service, Captain Brooke?' the general said in the course of the passage to Calcutta. "'Yes, sir, I am sure that is the best for me.' "'Oh, I think it is, Brooke. Of course you have been exceptionally fortunate in getting such rapid promotion. Still, a good business is a great deal better than soldiering. I wrote very strongly in your favour when I sent off my dispatches the day we came down to the coast, and you are certain of your brevet. Still, it is just as well that the news of your resignation should not get home before the Gazette comes out, with your name in it. I think the best thing that I can do is to give you leave for a time, as soon as we get to Calcutta. I am sure that you deserve a rest, for your work has been terribly heavy. Thank you, sir. That was just the favour that I was going to ask you. I shall find out as soon as I get there where my uncle is and join him. My own mind is quite made up, but he has certainly a right to be consulted before I take any final step. Quite right. I feel no doubt that his opinion will agree with yours, and I think that you are showing a good deal more wisdom than most fellows would do to give up the service when you have distinguished yourself, and have a much better chance than falls to the lot of one man in a hundred. Still there can be no real doubt that a man in a good business out here can retire early and go home with a fortune, while in the army you are liable at any time, after you get the rank of colonel, to be laid on the shelf for years. Besides, you will be your own master, which is more than anyone in the army can say. You can go home when you like, either for a stay or for a permanency, and you are not liable to have the run the risk of another campaign such as this has been. If one was sure of campaigns, I don't think that I could possibly bring myself to leave the service, but it's the probability of being kept for three or four years at a time, doing nothing at Calcutta or Madras that decided me. The general nodded. You are quite right, Brooke. On active service a soldier's life is indeed a stirring one, but there's nothing more dull and monotonous than garrison life in peacetime. Accordingly, as soon as they landed in Calcutta, Stanley was put in orders for absence on leave for three months. He learned from his uncle's agent that they had heard from the uncle only a few days before at Chittagong 
and that he was then on the point of leaving for Arakan, whither he had ordered a large consignment of goods to be forwarded to him by the next ship. Three days later Stanley started to join him, leaving his address at Arakan with Sir Archibald Campbell, in case there should be a need to recall him before the three months' leave expired. The vessel in which he was sailing carried the consignment of goods to his uncle, and he had therefore no fear of finding that the latter had left Arakan before his arrival. Meinik was still with him. He left the army after the last battle had been fought, and had travelled to the spot where he had buried his money, before embarking with Stanley in the canoe, and after an absence of three days rejoined the force. On the way down to Rangoon Stanley had a long talk with him as to his future plans. "'I have only one plan, Master, and that is to stay with you as long as I live. But you will have plenty to live comfortably upon now, Meinik, for after all that you have done for me, of course I shall arrange for you to have a sum that will keep you in comfort.' Meinik shook his head. "'Burma is a bad country, Master. After living with the English I would not go back to live under the King's officers in any case.' Any money that I have would be squeezed out of me before long. No, master, I will go with you, unless you drive me from you. And if you do, I will go to Chittagong and live there. But I do not think that you will do that. Certainly not, Meinik. As long as you are willing to remain with me, I shall be very glad, indeed, to have you with me. But if, at any time, you wish to marry and settle down on land of your own, I shall give you five hundred pounds, which is only a small portion of the sum those rubies, which you got your band to give me, brought me in. "'Oh, I dare say I shall marry,' Meinik said, "'but that will make no difference. "'As long as I live, I will stay with you.' Meinik had been astounded at Calcutta, which presented a strong contrast indeed to the city which, as a Burman, he had regarded as the most important place in the world. "'The Burmese are fools, master. "'They should have sent two or three men here before they made up their minds to go to war. "'If they had been truly told what Calcutta was like, "'they would never have ventured to make war with the English.' End of chapter 17, The Pride of Burma Humbled, recording by Mike Harris.